This is Rough Drafts Welcome, the podcast where you can mess up, and we can too. I'm Sachiko. And I'm Erin. And together with the editors at Salt and Sage Books, we're changing the face of storytelling one rough draft at a time. We're glad you're here. Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Rough Drafts. Welcome. We are very excited to welcome back Amy Bowen. We had such a positive response from all of you for her last episode that we decided to invite her back to talk a little bit more about the intersection of creativity and mental health. Um, Amy wants to have her video off today, which is totally fine. And we're excited to chat with her. So hi, Amy. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back again. Yes, we're so excited to talk. All righty. So let's just dive right in. Um, We tentatively titled this when you and I talked about things that we could discuss, um, supporting your mental health as a creative person. Um, But I want to start with the idea that I feel like I was introduced to this idea in like early middle school when we very first started reading books by authors who were considered like classic Like these are the books that you read. And then as we got to know a little bit more about each of the authors, the more that I was like, these people were all like mentally not okay in some way. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to put like air quotes around not okay, but like they were not neurotypical or they had some sort of mental illness or they had addictions or basically they all seemed like they really lived a life of struggle, that things were really hard for them. And it was Mm -hmm. pretty easy, even in like my 12, 13 year old brain to be like, oh, I get it when you suffer you make better art. When you're mentally ill, you make better art. So I'm really curious to hear your take on that. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I mean, this dives into so many different intersections as well, because we could talk about how many of those writers we're discussing are white men. (laughs) Uh, So almost all of them are white men. Right. So I think there's a lot of complexity first to recognize there that even when we're looking at those authors, there is some level of privilege that they still had. And so back then being, it wasn't defined as being mentally ill, right? They were viewed as um, being a little bit eccentric, Mm. right? Uh, But it wasn't something that was negative as long as they could have some kind of benefit from capitalism from what they were doing. Uh, And I think it's very much the same today, right? Like we can see uh, all over the place. If you are different and eccentric in a way that benefits our capitalist society, then like kudos to you and you're great and you're amazing. Um, I think we see this a lot in the way that autistic people are represented as usually savants, right? Who accomplish these amazing, wonderful things that that benefit everybody else. But we don't talk about the experience of disability that is also often a large part of autism. So I think generally a lot of it it ties in with those kind of intersectionalities with what it means to be a white man here in the United States, uh, first of all. And it has to do with privilege, right? Because they could be struggling with those same kinds of mental illnesses. Um, And if they didn't have privilege, if they didn't have the ability to have someone read what it was that they were writing, or they didn't have the time and space to do that because they didn't have the money or the resources or the energy to do it, then it would be kind of a moot point. Exactly. I've thought often about how many 
really incredible creative minds were simply, they just didn't have the ability or the energy or like literally the supplies or the know-how, like who's to say how many people were born into poverty and never learned how to read who could have been our quote unquote next great American novelist or whatever it happens to be. But the circumstances of it are hugely important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there is some element, you know, even if you are looking at being creative, usually there are elements of like some pretty high executive function or support from the people around you to make what you're doing accessible to anybody else. And I think that's another component where there's definitely a lot of privilege. And for people today who may be very creative people and want to be expressing themselves in more creative ways, if you're lacking the executive function to be able to follow through or find the motivation to complete a task, or you, um, I mean, there's a variety of things, right? Or you don't have adequate support, then someone now who could be incredibly creative and just like you said, be the next big thing is not going to be able to actually follow through with that um, in the same way. I mean, I know we've seen this a lot with, well, my personal intersectionality with this is being a woman and how many times even just as a child and through school and through my college education, how many times I was put down for the qualities that were seen as benefits in my brothers or my male colleagues or my male coworkers mm. or fellow students. That's the word I'm looking for. Classmates. Um, but how many times that they would look at me and they would say, oh, like that's a little cruel or that's a little intense or, oh, you've done this a little too much. But then the same thing coming from, it was often a white man would be received with this like, oh, it reminds me of this really famous person who is a writer. Right. And like it, it felt to me like boys were allowed to have more, like they're allowed to do more. Like they can, I don't necessarily want to say like they get away with more, but even like just in a purely literary sense, I felt mm-hmm. really constrained by the expectations that were put upon my gender. Right. Which, I mean, I I think there's a very long history of that and why a lot of women today still use pen names and the things that they do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that same thing goes across other areas with art. I guess this is something that we should bring up as well. For me, I have background in art myself. So I view myself as a creative person. I was originally an art major in college and I feel like it's a pretty important part of me and my self-expression. So mm-hmm. I can relate to that component of it as well. And I think that you also see that same issue as a woman in visual arts um, or in any kind of dancing and things as well, that you are allowed to be more provocative as a man. You're allowed to mm-hmm. make a bigger statement. You're allowed to make people uncomfortable um, more frequently with less backlash than typically what we see if you are in a marginalized community. Yes. Well, and you and I both have the distinct privilege of being white too. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where our voices are more likely to be heard than people who are not white. Yep. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Love it. Love this patriarchal society. So, so (laughs) (laughs) so can we talk a little bit about just the romanticization of untreated mental health? And mm-hmm. perhaps even like untreated mental illness. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's interesting in my work because I there is some elements of that that I experience from the people themselves, but not as much as I see in popular culture. Mm. And I definitely see it being with more specific diagnoses. So for individuals who have um, what we would term more severe mental illnesses, um, like schizophrenia, for example, there can be, and bipolar is another one, where when you are in a phase or a cycle in that um, illness where you're more manic or where you're connected to parts of you that you don't normally have, being medicated really can um, shift your experience, right? If you're no longer in that manic space, you might be producing fewer things if you are uh, than you would be if you allowed the manic episode to continue. There's so many other (laughs) negative sides that also come from that, of course. And the quality of the work that's done in those time periods, I think, is very individualized. I, but I definitely make the argument, at least in the experience I've had with my clients, that it is a different type of creativity Hmm. um, that maybe has less limitations because typically in those periods, there is higher levels of grandiosity, which for many creatives, there is that element of self-doubt and feeling like you're not good enough to do what it is that you're supposed to be doing. And sometimes those components of mental illnesses can allow that to open up. You know, you may be able to see yourself more positively or take risks that you wouldn't otherwise because you'd be afraid of it. And that can be very negative in some situations, but creatively that can be positive to open that. I do think there are other ways that you can access that by processing through your um, self-doubt, right? So to have an overall positive quality of life, uh, being able to appropriately medicate for those more severe conditions, I think is really important. But I can definitely see where that would come up. I think it's also a hope for people that it is possible to still meet that kind of level of this savant, incredibly productive um, person, you know, mm-hmm. and they're not treated. And I, I think in terms of actual experience, if we were able to have data on it, I don't think that we would find that being the majority of people. I'm noticing as you're talking how much of, at least for me, it's reminding me how much of my, I, hmm, my goodness, my own worth feels like it is really deeply connected to what I am able to produce and the response Mm -hmm. that the outside world has to it. And especially if like, I'm, I'm totally spitballing here, but if I had something happening in my brain that changed the way that I saw things, I'm thinking of Vincent van Gogh who had, Mm -hmm. I, I think he was like, had poisoning of some sort, but like it was literally changing the way that his eyes were receiving color. And so the way that he was painting was so unusual, but it was unusual because there was something literally physically happening with him. And I think Mm -hmm. it's really easy for us to look at, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years later to be like, wow, so transcendent, so remarkable, so whatever. But that doesn't actually give us very much insight into how he felt. Right. So it seems like there's this inherent balance between, well, maybe I can create something that will last 
the ages and being happy while I'm actually alive. Yeah. And I, there, there are some people, I know I have a client in particular that very much relates with that idea of feeling like if I really process through my trauma, if I really process through the things that are going on, I will not be in pain enough to create good art. Yes. Um, Pain has to come with art. Yeah. And I think that to some degree of that, that's true. But I also think that healing from your trauma doesn't disappear your past experiences or connection with the pain. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that being able to process through it and not have it as actively impacting your daily life doesn't mean that you can't still reconnect with the experiences that you had and express that. Yeah. Um, That was actually, I I don't think they have to cancel each other out. Yes. That was one of the things actually, when I very first started going to therapy with my first therapist, that was something that was a genuine concern for me where I felt like, well, if I deal with all of these things, I will be less creative. And she was Mm -hmm. like, well, why? And for me, it was because I was worried that if I healed it, I wouldn't be able to access or describe the pain Mm -hmm. in quite as keen a way. And so she suggested to me that I ask a particular part of my brain to just remember all of those feelings, but that I don't have to exist in them day to day anymore. And that was really helpful, like reframe Mm -hmm. for me. Like I'm not losing it. It's there still, I can still access it, but it, I don't have to live in it all day, every day. Right. Yeah. And if you're looking at the overall goals of being able to make a difference in the world or express yourself or be able to have your voice kind of reach more people, mm-hmm. um, usually those same things that we don't want to heal from because we're nervous are actually keeping us from doing that, you know? Um, so I think it's definitely a double-edged sword that people can get really caught up in because yeah, I think we have our own ways to self-sabotage without realizing that that's what it is, you know, and keep us in a way that feels more comfortable and familiar instead of stepping into growth and change and really not knowing what the outcome will be. Mm -hmm, For sure. Um, Do you find, how do you feel about the intersection with um, medication that we've talked about this a little bit already, but the idea that, well, if I take medication, then that will take away my ability to be creative. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think again, like this, it has to do with the particular kind of mental illness that we're talking about or neurodivergence, because there are a lot of creative people that I think if they were appropriately accommodated Mm. would be able to experience and express a lot of their creativity very frequently and well, um, if they were medicated and that, that is, there's a lot of privilege bound up in that. Um, but I, I do see for those kinds of mental illnesses that are more frequent, more common, um, like anxiety or depression, um, you know, different neurotypes like autism or ADHD, that being appropriate, appropriately accommodated, which can include medications, actually is more helpful to be able to 
express that creativity and to follow through with it and have it not be something that just is kind of a flash in the pan. Yeah. Um, because those, while those mental health conditions can, um, lend themselves to that, they also have a really significant, like there's a weight that they can add to your ability to express yourself creatively as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking about what I have been learning recently just in my own research about masking and how mm-hmm. and this is more on the um, neurodivergence end of the scale, but how masking, when you learn to unmask, you can have skill regression mm-hmm. where the things that you learned how to do were kind of, they were tied to the mask. So I can see how, um, for example, I have ADHD, the way that my brain works when I am in a stage that feels extremely hyper-focused on creativity to be able to remove that, like trying to hide myself and trying to keep myself safe is tied a little bit to my, well, I'm just going to disappear for several hours and write. And like, that's a quote unquote appropriate way for me to hyper-focus. Like that was praised. Mm -hmm. Um, But so in unmasking, I'm having to confront the fact that like when I do sit down for hours and hours to write where I used to be able to hyper-focus for hours, now I'm finding that I get, I'm going to use the word bored, but like my brain runs out of steam after Mm -hmm. like 30 minutes, which is so much less than I used to be able to write in chunks. And so that's been hard to figure out, but it's not that my creativity is gone For me, Mm -hmm. it's like I need to figure out a different brain pathway to get it. Right. And I'm glad you brought that up because there are, there's a lot of nuance to it. Um, Frequently, if we're, especially if we're talking about neurodiversity, it's very common experience to generally feel like you don't fit or you don't belong or you're different and to receive negative feedback around that. And hyper-focus and being able to, you know, learn a new skill in three days or, you know, be able to really hear all of the different nuances in a new language and being able to learn it really quickly. Those kinds of things are typically experienced by the neurodivergent person as a way to be like, see, I am good. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I might not do that. Or you might think I'm weird about that, but I can get that validation and I can feel like I'm a good person because I'm weird in this good way because I can hyper-focus on this thing and produce this much more effectively and faster than any of you would be able to, to be better at capitalism. Yes. yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and just to feel a sense of belonging, right? Like that the attention Mm -hmm. that you're getting from the people around you is not altogether negative. And so when your self-worth gets tied into it, of course, it's very difficult to not do that. But we also aren't paying attention to the cost of that, right? Like if you do Mm -hmm. hyper-focus on something and you really like it for six hours, and then you have to like feed yourself after that, we're not really talking about the negative sides that come with it either, right? Because when you're growing up, doing it for someone else to validate or to see what it is that you're producing. They're not seeing all that negative stuff. Like you're doing that in your closet afterwards. You know what I mean? Um, And so I think it's uh, maybe not a full picture to talk about just the skill regression as if I could do this really well. And then now I can't is the only component of it instead Mm -hmm. of I could do this really well, but it also came with all of these impacts on me that now 
I'm more level across the board and I'm not, I'm not seeing those impacts, but I'm also not able to be as hyper productive or to do something that brings in as much validation as I could have previously without it mm-hmm. throwing off other stuff. I like um, that distinction or like that reframe of um, unmasking because it's less about the skill isn't there and it's more about I am actively accommodating for myself in the moment. Yes. And I'm more in tune with my body and I'm paying attention to what I actually need. And mm-hmm. what I need is to sit down or what I need is to take a break or what I need is to watch cartoons for 15 minutes or what I need is to go and put on socks or, you know, whatever. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because I think that's part of what we see as well. Like even if you are in that really hyperproductive place for an extended period of time, like our, our bodies, no matter how, what neurotype we have, are meant to burn out at a certain rate, right? And so typically that's also we part all of the have pattern. to go to the bathroom eventually. Yes, that's part of the problem uh, with any neurotype. But I think especially this can be a huge source of shame for people who um, are neurodiverse, where they can be super hyperproductive and do the thing, you know, like do a NaNoWriMo for a month mm. and accomplish it and do awesome. But then, you know, the next month when they're wanting to work on something else, they don't have any fuel to do it. And then they beat themselves up and feel like, what's wrong with me? I could do this last month. Why can't awesome. I do it now? Do it again. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. And really, it's just kind of that expectation that we should be able to function as a, like, a robot, you know, right. and and a hyperproductive robot so that I can be validated for not being normal in all of the ways that society wants me to be. Yes. And I think there is um, an expectation almost like uh, I saw it was a TikTok the other day. Um, Casey Davis was the one who is she was who I got the idea from. She said that people are OK with you being disabled or, you know, having mental health differences as long as you hate yourself. <laughs> but as soon as you're saying, no, no, I deserve to be accommodated. I deserve support. I love myself for who I am. Then mm-hmm. there is a lot of pushback around right. that. I'm thinking about the idea too, that um, specifically with neurodiversity, how often people with autism are, or autistic people are painted as robots. This idea mm-hmm. that like, well, if you can just produce the same thing over and over and over again, then we quote unquote society, capitalist society, like kind of knows where to put you mm-hmm. and that you are more acceptable if you are less human, which is pretty yeah. awful. Well, and, and I, I think that we can see that pattern in any area in history where there is a um, a big power differential, you know, if there's a dominant and submissive, um, separation, you know, where someone has more of the power and control and the other person is meant to comply and do what is required to just help the system work. Of course, it's fine as long as it's benefiting the system. But if that starts to say, you know, like we saw a ton of pushback with this, with the ADA passing of the American Disabilities Act, where, you know, generally as a public, they could have surveyed people and they would have supported um, more equality for people with disabilities. And (laughs) then when it actually came to 
following through with the ADA, how much pushback there was for just basic accommodations, you know, um, basic putting in ramps to get into buildings, how much pushback there was around those things, because it's, it, it makes you feel good to feel like you're being a, um, you know, a kind person or that you are supportive of these marginalized people. But when it actually comes to experiencing your own discomfort to do so, then it's, yeah, it is a lot more difficult. It's a lot harder for people to rumble with. I'm thinking about how the whole goal of Salt and Sage books really is to increase diversity in all forms of media. We're specifically focused in books, but I mean, we work with, we've talked about this. Um, We've worked with video game companies and comics and uh, film and podcasts and audio productions and all sorts of different things. But the whole point of increasing diversity, the way that we do that is that we are asking the power structure to shift. Yeah. And we are asking the people in power really to make room and to make mm-hmm. conscious room and that mm-hmm. bucks against so much um, systemic training. Mm-hmm. And especially if you've been benefiting from the privilege, I get why it's difficult to like unpack that because it requires yeah. you to take a closer look at yourself. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree 100%. And so much of it is reinforced. I mean, in every way, in the way that we function and in the way that, you know, our cultures work here in the United States in particular. Um, and it does require a lot of self-confrontation to unpack the unconscious conditioning that you have just been living with. Yeah. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. I'm really curious how you feel like mental health can intersect with um, really rigid advice. Specifically, I feel like I've been like crusading against this particular uh, piece of advice like since the day we started this podcast, but especially the advice that like, writers have to write every single day, like write every day or you're not a writer. Or the cute little aphorism I heard of it recently was, um, number one way to know you're a writer, do you write every day? Mm -hmm. I'm curious how, what what do you think about that? Um, I mean, just generally anything that's one size fits all we know is really not, (laughs) you know, there. They, it just doesn't work that way. Um, it even, it reminds me of, um, you know, for fat folks in particular, where we talk about, um, there's a lot of companies that are trying to, um, be more accessible, Mm -hmm. but in doing so, what they did is they just took their original sizing and then just added two inches everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah. that when you actually try that on, like that's not how. <laughs> that's yeah, that's not, not actually, actually how the bodies are. How the body is. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. the taking, and, like we took a skinny bodies. I don't want to say skinny even. We took a thin bodies measurements and expanded yeah. them. Right. Yeah. Which is why it's like my husband is a big and a tall guy, but we have a really hard time finding pants for him that are the right width and the right length. They're always. Right way too and I mean not just like well like an inch or two too long they're like four to six inches too long and he's not particularly short 
as far as like the average American man, like, yeah, right. that exact thing that I'm over here. Like you didn't measure a single person who was a real yeah. person. Did you exactly. when you were making yeah. these pants? Right. And, and then we get to ask the question around like, who does this really benefit? Yeah. Are we, is the rule or the one size fits all that we're coming up with there so that I can feel good about myself because mm-hmm. I am doing this and other people will pat me on the back for it, but I am not actually listening to who I'm supposed to be working with and being more accessible for. Um, and I think we very much do that to ourselves as well. It's like, there's one way that we're supposed to live our lives, one way we're supposed to function, one way that your day is supposed to flow. And am I doing that because I get to pat myself on the back and feel like I am meeting society's expectations for what it is I'm supposed to look like, but maybe Mm. neglecting like what would actually feel good to me? Um, Because if we're talking about being able to experience decreased mental health conditions, if you're expecting yourself to function in that very, I don't know, very rigid way, um, for some people that might work really well. But for a lot of people, that's actually going to create more anxiety because you're holding yourself to that expectation all the time. And any time that you fail or don't meet it perfectly, then of course that leads could lead to more depression. Uh, and so I, I definitely think when it comes to our behavior in any kind of way, we want to really be looking at what is going to bring me the greatest sense of peace and ease. Mm. Um, what's going to help me feel the greatest sense of like contentment and self-expression. Um, and within that, obviously that's ideally value-based so that we're not harming other people in the process of doing that. But I do think that we have room in our culture to really tie into that kind of self-expression and diversity and that that would benefit everybody long-term instead of trying to function on that one rule. There is so much more that we want to keep talking with Amy about, so we decided to extend this conversation into the next episode. We're pausing here for the time being. Can't wait to see you on the next one. Thanks. This has been Rough Drafts Welcome. Thank you so much for listening. Got any questions? We would love to hear them. Got a complaint? We'll hear it too. Yep. Leave us a five-star review pretty please and thank you and if you want to book with salt and sage books or learn anything else about what we do or if you want to work with us or take our courses or blah 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 you can find us at www.saltandsagebooks.com and we're all over social media too we sure are and we'll see you next time bye bye